and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite A-list of food writers. It's about life, it's about culture, it's about politics, all through the prism of food. And this week I'm with Amber Guinness, whose book A House Party in Tuscany captures the spirit of her parents who lovingly restored a humble ruin of a farmhouse they found back in 1989 and where they raised their daughters. Even though there wasn't any running water or kitchens and they would just figure it out, you know, they got a sort of disused wooden door and placed it on two wheelbarrows and then set up this completely gorgeous picnic with carafes and loaves of bread and tomatoes and all these things which didn't require cooking but you know it meant they could invite friends over and say okay now you've come for lunch would you mind terribly you know knocking down a wall with us or whatever but this was no ordinary restoration tatler lists it amongst the interior wonders of the world which amber has now turned into a retreat for artists where the stylish hosting is in the image of her parents her book is the story of the house her family and their eye for beauty where stunning food conjured up like a dream from the tuscan countryside is peppered throughout the memories i asked her if that's what she set out to do yeah exactly and yeah it's sort of celebrating i suppose just yeah what my parents created and the kind of atmosphere and the conviviality and um yeah this wonderful kind of upbringing of beauty and adventure that me and my sister had which we were very yeah lucky to lucky to experience well, beauty and adventure, those are two words to actually explain this extraordinary story. It feels to me that your family were stylish, but in that lovely bohemian way that, you know, they can make something out of nothing, particularly your mother. Um, although the gardens tended by your father are pretty lovely too, yes. aren't they? Was it beautifully stylish in that kind of make it up as you go along way? Yeah, I think so. I think they were very good at kind of making do with what they had I mean their first house in um which was in a town called Greve in Chianti my mum still talks about the fact that they didn't have a dishwasher and you know to this day she's so grateful for dishwashers she still has these horrific memories of you know deepest bleakest February and it's freezing and you're washing everything by hand having had a dinner for 12 people in freezing cold water and yeah, it feels like that. And you and your sister kind of bumbling along while the builders are actually in the middle of rebuilding it all. And you at one point, you do have a pretty bad accident uh, getting in the way of a builder. Yes. Take <laughs> us back to how it all began. Well, so my parents, my my dad moved to, to Florence in the mid 70s when he finished university and worked at the British Institute in the library, which, you know, sort of afforded him a bit of you know, pretty lax structure, I would say. I don't think it was particularly taxing. And it was just a very lovely city to be in, full of artists and writers. And it was when Harold Acton was there. And, you know, I think it was just a really fun place, inspiring place to be. And of course, always beautiful. And then my mum moved there, I think in 1982, and she was doing an antiquing and restoration course in furniture, which, you know, obviously then served her in great stead throughout her life. Um, And they met and fell in love and got married and lived in Chianti in quite a small, inconvenient house. Um, and then they had me in 1989, at which point they found Arniano, which is about an hour and a half south of where they had been. And I mean, now it's quite fashionable, but back then, you know, all their Florentines and friends were going, what are you doing moving to Montalcino? I mean, it is the end of the world. What are you up to? 
Um, but it was so beautiful and the, and the views were so beautiful that they couldn't resist. And so the house took quite a long time, didn't it, to to become what the Tatler calls the interior wonders of the <laughs> world. It, it, it took some time. It took a lot of effort, but it took your mother's wonderful sort of scavenger eye and a lot of patience, I presume, on, on everyone's part. And I love the idea that all the way through, there's these friends coming in and your mother knocking up some incredible meal. It is like something out of a film isn't it yeah I think it was quite like that because I mean so the house had a roof and windows and floors but but no electricity no no water no running water um you know so it was it was very basic so I think they waited for these quite very basic things to be installed in part of the house uh and then we sort of moved into one room and um and we're essentially camping uh for about a year and a half and I was you know bear in mind I was a small baby so so it was quite intrepid of them uh and my dad's kind of main interest was the garden and my mum's was definitely the interior um I mean I think you're the scavenging I think you're thinking of the particular story from the book which I do love which is this there's this um baldakin you know sort of lovely canopy above one of the beds at Adniano and it was and she found it when she was strolling through you know a field or something and saw this derelict house which was surrounded by barbed wire saying do not enter danger you know the roof has fallen in and she climbed through this, you know, below this sign and went in to see if she could find anything and found this sort of silky, tattered baldachin, which she then reupholstered and is still there 30 years later. So, yeah, very intrepid. I am talking about that story, but I'm also talking about, you know, the wonderful sort of the beautiful eye for detail. And that very much is what your food is about, isn't it? And your idea of creativity, bringing people to this place. And we'll go into the story of how you've made it into an artist's (laughs) wonderland. But that is the point of it, isn't it? It is about seeing an opportunity. And it's an intuitive way of reading a place uh, and inviting people to come with you to in this experience to, to eat and paint and imbibe the environment. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's basically just it's about having a huge amount of imagination, which my parents certainly had with Adniano. I mean, if you look at pictures of the house from 1989, you know, it was surrounding the house. It was scrubland. There was not one tree or shrub or anything um, and yet they kind of saw this potential and they would invite friends over, even though there wasn't any running water or kitchens, and they would just figure it out. I mean, there's this beautiful photo, which I'm sure everyone thought was very basic. But now we look, uh, now I look back at it and it seems like this insane idyll, which is, you know, they got a sort of disused wooden door and placed it on two wheelbarrows and then set up this completely gorgeous picnic with carafes and loaves of bread and tomatoes and all these things which didn't require cooking, but, you know, it meant they could invite friends over and say, OK, now you've come for lunch. Would you help mind? Would you mind terribly, you know, knocking down a wall with us or whatever <laughs> needed doing? <laughs> Absolute heaven. Um, so, yeah, it was sort of inviting people in and getting involved. Yeah, I mean, I have to say we did actually move house that way. We invited people around for a wonderful feast, but only if they brought everything from the previous house to the new house Brilliant. and when they landed they were given something gorgeous to eat and a bottle of beer or whatever and we, got, we moved everybody in, in an afternoon it was genius it's idea. genius um, genius <laughs> <laughs> julie that is so clever oh yeah and they, they had to put the carpets down as well and hang the curtains you know put them to work i mean fabulous so you grew up with this incredibly sort of in, a creative imaginative wonderful make it up world obviously it had a, an amazing uh, influence on you but in terms of food you were learning to cook 
in the same way. You were sort of just basically, it's by osmosis, absorbing this wonderful creativity at your mother's feet. I mean, can you remember the first things that you were making? I mean, you talk about Malfatti, but tell us about some of those very early moments around food. Yeah, well, when I was very young, she did a lot of kind of quite English baking, I would say. So it was you know, chocolate biscuit cake and things like that. And all the ingredients, it was quite funny. It was it was considered a big treat because all the ingredients had to be sourced from this, um, what was it called? It was a shop in Florence called something like the English Convenience Store and it sold Marmite and golden syrup and digestives um, at completely exorbitant prices, <laughs> you know. So this so chocolate biscuit cake would end up costing however many tens of thousands of lira. But, um, but it was, yeah, that was always a big treat and very exciting. Um, but yes, and then the other things I remember cooking were definitely, you know, the things I talk, uh, we'll talk about later in my food moments, you know, roast chicken with grapes, malfatti, um, a bit of pasta. And my mum was just very strict, you know, because if, if my sister and I asked any questions about food, you know, she was so, she's such, she is such an intuitive cook. She claims to have, uh, have hung up her skillet now, but she is a very good cook. Um, <laughs> and she, if we ask any questions, she said, God, I don't know how I do it. I just do it. You know, you have to watch me. So, you know, if, if, you know, if we'd asked a question and then the next day she was cooking, she'd sort of come storming into the wherever we were watching yeah. TV or doing whatever we were doing and say, I thought you said you wanted to know how to make X, come and watch me. And actually, it was a brilliant way to learn. Well, having said that, she did work at the River Cafe for quite some summers, didn't she? I mean, it was really just to help Ruth and Rose. But that's the level. They wouldn't have just taken in any old cook would they she was pretty darn hot yeah she was she was a very she was a very good cook and I think yeah it was a couple of summers she did and it was just it was in the early 90s and it was when they were starting out and they were getting busier and busier she worked on the cold sections which um yeah I think it was I think it was great fun and yeah much later on I waitressed and worked on the cold sections there as well so it's kind of nice family continuity yeah there's a lovely picture actually of Rose and Ruthie um in the courtyard at Adniano again when it's this picnic on the wheelbarrows (laughs) so presumably they helped knock down a wall or two themselves sadly your father died in 2011 and it stopped everything um you all moved away um the house really wasn't visited pretty much until 2014 that must have been the biggest sort of rupture to everyone's life not only had you lost your father but you lost the whole family world can you take us back to that moment yeah i mean it was it was you know i'm sure anyone who's who's lost a parent you know it's a it's a catastrophe um I, i feel particularly my father was such a big powerful character you know he was charming and funny and good company and made everyone who he was talking to feel wonderful you know when he when his attention was on you it was kind of this laser focus um which and everyone just he was so roundly adored uh and did lots for us and you know we're all very codependent family and adore each other so it it was it was a disaster and you know and Arniana was his his kind of masterpiece in terms of the garden and when he was ill, so he, he died of, um, of lung cancer. But so when he was ill, he was in England doing his treatment just because we were all studying there. and It was just easier f- for us all to be there. Um, and then we quite soon after he died, we went back for the first time with his sister and my cousins. And it was just this kind of unbelievable, uh, I suppose, physical manifestation of his absence which was his garden being completely untended and abandoned and that was just sort of such a dagger to the heart um and I think generally places like that 
when a big character dies, when the character dies, you know, sometimes they lose their soul or they die themselves a bit. So that was a huge sadness for me and my sister and my mum. You write that very beautifully using the swimming pool as an example. And you say it was just full of leaves and frogs and you hadn't really noticed that he had tended to it before until it wasn't tended anymore. I yeah. found that very poignant. Yeah, exactly. I guess it's it's true of anything, isn't it? You know, you, you don't you take for granted what people do, how much they do. It's the pattern of life. You don't really notice the pattern of life until it stops. Yeah, exactly. That's such a good way of putting it. And then you have to rearrange it. Exactly, exactly. So then my sister and I sort of avoided the house a bit, I would say, um, until 2014. I mean, we'd sometimes go with friends, but it was stood pretty much empty, I would say. My my mum was there a lot because she was working nearby, but, um, but it was pretty abandoned. And then in 2014, I was talking to my dear friend, Will Rob Curzon, who's a landscape artist, and he was describing my dad's garden sort of from the point of view of a landscape painter um, about, you know, the huge vistas, but then also kind of juxtaposed with the quite intimate scenes of the cypresses planted by my dad and how that gave such kind of opportunity for for a landscape painter. And so I think we just suddenly thought, hang on. And I, I also, and we both wanted to kind of find an excuse to spend more time in Italy and to be able to support ourselves. So we came up with this idea of bringing strangers into the house uh, and kind of combining our our passions and talents and so I would he's a very amusing brilliant host himself and so I would cook he would teach painting and we would kind of both host these groups of people who would all eat together and kind of yeah we would try and recreate an, a house party atmosphere while recreating the sense of hospitality and conviviality that my dad and mum were so good at kind of providing people. I mean, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It brings together all the wondrousness of your upbringing in the family home. It makes the family home something that actually can have a future, but it reinvents it in your image. And that's what's lovely about it. And you do the food. Your own hosting has taken over. I mean, on the subject of hosting, I'm doing quite a few things about hosting at the moment. And I do retreats here myself and I'm doing the Leaths course uh, to learn how to cook for more people than just, you know, my family and my friends. Um, I still find the idea of, of cooking for lots of people well you know, rather than just putting a whole load of food on the table and doing it in a beautiful manner. Rather daunting. You don't, clearly, give us an insight into a few days before you've got 12 people arriving. The food is going to be incredible. The preparation must take you weeks. I mean, how on earth do you do that? It's, thank goodness. I mean, now we've been doing it, what, where are we, sort of eight eight years I think thankfully I've, I've got a few systems in place but yes so a few days before I work what I'll do is I'll start thinking about about menus um, and the way I do that is I get a sort of a, an A4 piece of paper and I'll put it landscape and I'll write out you know let's say we start on a Monday Monday dinner Tuesday lunch Tuesday dinner Wednesday lunch Wednesday dinner and I'll start jotting in menus and kind of look what we've had the night before what we're going to have the next day and try and balance things out so you're not having pasta every meal three days in a row or you're not having meats five meals in a row you know kind of trying to and trying to bring out the best of of what's in season really because because that's such a joy of of you know being in eating particularly in Italy is kind of making the most of the broad beans or the artichokes or the incredible tomatoes or aubergines or whatever it happens to be at that time (laughs) 
and I'll and I'll you know I'll make pastry and in, in batches and freeze freeze some of it so then I can just quickly roll out a tart or uh, or yeah. I'm aware people can't do that. You know, if you're if you're doing it for fun to have people over for dinner, uh, you know, and you've got to go to an office, then you definitely kind of you either need to get up really early or do it on the Sunday or do it the night before. Yeah, yeah. Let's look at some of your uh, food moments it, because it kind of takes mm. you through that that journey to Aniano now, doesn't it? Um, you start off with roast chicken with grapes. Um, it was the first dish you ever learned to cook. Now, not many people can say that. It's quite complicated. It's a big feast. <laughs> um, tell us why you've chosen that one. Um, well, it's a, it's a dish that a lady in Spain where my my granddad and his second wife lived uh she was she was french spanish so they lived that in this in this town in northern spain and a friend of theirs taught my mum to to do this andalusian dish which is roast chicken with with white grapes um and it's actually it's not complicated at all you literally it's just you get the chicken and you put some olive oil and salt and you surround it with with white grapes and you whack it in the oven um, and it comes out and it's just this incredibly delicious you know sweet and sour and rich and unusual and it's um yeah I, I really love it and it really reminds it's just a dish that really reminds me of home and my childhood and and it's always such a winner I mean um I think I, I wrote to you you know someone wrote to me the other day just before the book had come out actually who I hadn't spoken to since I graduated university um so that's 10 years ago and you know they said do you remember in Leith Walk you used to make this delicious chicken with grapes how do I make it um you know and that's a decade on so it definitely sticks in people's people's minds well, i talked to a lot of people about mm. roast chicken a lot of people choose roast chicken as their food moments emily scott did um the towpath uh ladies laurie and laura did um it, you know it is one of those meals that is absolutely sticks in your mind it is i made one yesterday it is you know one of my absolute yeah. favorite things to cook but you have to have a certain kind of confidence to be able to do it because just in terms of cooking time um people are terrified of not getting it right you know the worst thing to do is you know put it on the table and it's pink oh yes that is a disaster yeah oh, it's burnt you know I mean that does take a lot of confidence and you're talking about this as the first dish that you and you ever really cooked and that you set it out you laid the table you lit the candles and and you you, you know you put on a feast for your parents that takes a lot of confidence how old were you um I think I was 12 yeah so I was definitely young I mean I, I'm sure my mum was I can't remember this but I'm sure she was flitting around in the background you know making sure I didn't burn myself or in terms of cooking times my mum has absolutely no idea if you ask her she would not know she does everything by instinct so I suppose I just watched her and kind of you know I knew that about half an hour into the cooking she usually tipped a glass of water over the chicken or you know um or and then oh yes no this is when she would take it out and um and yeah so actually I mean writing the book was so interesting because I had to turn this very instinctive way of cooking into weight time you know a way that other people could kind of understand it because obviously they're not watching me or my mum or my sister do it they are you know they've got to read a recipe so that was quite a fun or interesting process definitely yeah yeah your second food moment is also something you made when you were tiny um this is one of the recipes that your mother would call you and say i thought you wanted to make malfati yeah this is gnocchi yeah yeah, exactly. So, I mean, not something that every five, six-year-old's going to be making. Uh, well, it's, thankfully, it's much. It's it's a much less uh, less complicated version of, of gnocchi because I think with you know with gnocchi you've got the potato, you have to get the, exactly the right level of kind of water and liquid, etc. So these are they are called malfatti, and uh, they are 
they are ricotta and spinach it's a, I suppose somewhere between a dumpling and a gnocchi um, and they are little balls and, and my mum put mint in them which was always very delicious and they're just sort of cheesy and dense and indulgent they're a huge treat because they definitely take a bit of meditative patience you know because you make the mixture which is fine quite straightforward but you have to leave it in the fridge for a certain amount of time so it sets and then you have to roll out the balls between your between your hands um I mean, I've, when I was in the kitchen at the Roof Cafe, I saw they do it. They often do it in a wine glass, sort of swilling it around to get the shape they like, oh. which is an interesting way. But I always just do it in my hands. Um, but yeah, so it's 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 huge fun and it's great fun to do if you're if you're a gang, you know, and if you've got friends, it takes no time at all and it's quite a fun, yeah, interactive thing to do. Great fun for kids actually because malfatti means badly made, doesn't it? So there's no kind of expectations. Exactly. Yeah. So they, they're badly maids, which my mum, though, her friend Beatrix always calls them Ben Fatty because they're always so perfectly they spherical, uh, my mum's ones. Whereas if you go to a restaurant, they're kind of a bit more messy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, your third food moment is, of course, uh, a song to the ingredients of Tuscany, extra virgin and very good olive oil. This is so important, but it's it's much more than just the oil. It's the whole culture of olive oil making and its place in the culture of Tuscany. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I, I mean, I'm so lucky because I've always, you know, I've been, I grew up in the kind of heart of, of olive oil making, which, you know, when I'm, when I, when I moved to England, it was so interesting to me how you can feel quite removed, I think, from the fact that olive oil is something that's harvested, something that's pressed, something that needs to be used within a certain amount of time. Um, and so we, we were just very lucky. I mean, we don't have that many trees at Adniana. We have 40 trees, I think. Um, and it's just, it's harvesting olives is a huge, hugely meditative thing. You know, you, you put nets on the ground and with your hands wearing gloves, you just sort of pull the, pull the leaves and the, the olives and the branches fall to the ground. And then you take it to the frantoy or to the olive press, which is, you know, just this hugely social kind of interesting place to be in November. So that's what uh, the olives are harvested in sort of between October and December. And, you know, you people come with these huge crates and everyone's grappling trying to cue barge and get their olives pressed and make sure their olives aren't getting mixed with anyone else's olives yeah hugely important isn't it yeah i mean these farmers are really protective aren't they because it's they must not be mixed if you've got very good olive oil it's worth more isn't it yes exactly how does that, do you, how, tell us a little bit about that process between the you know not so great olives that somebody else may have brought along and the incredibly good olives that can reach much more money also as with everything in italy different areas of the country you know claim that their olive olives are the best so in Liguria just they're grown differently they're grown on cliffs kind of with the sea on one side and the mountains on the other side and they're picked much later so it's much more mellow kind of uh easygoing flavor whereas in Tuscany um you know we love that very vivid green kind of peppery hits the back of your throat flavor which mellows out over the course of the year but um you know once it's been pressed and it's in the bottle but it is kind of in November it's very delicious and very prized um, and in Puglia, the same, they have a whole different other system. But yeah, I think very good olive oil is pressed, um, I think, at a temperature it doesn't go above 27 degrees. So it's cold pressed. And yeah, it's never heated too much. And there's a mix of olives as well. That's really important so that you get the different flavours like Careggiolo, Morellino. And I think not so good olive oil is probably, you know, there aren't there isn't such a mix of types. Um, so a really good olive orchard will have different varieties of olives olives within it um yeah which makes a big difference 
Yeah, and the farmers are very keen to to make sure that theirs are not mixed with them. Exactly, farmers. exactly. Yeah. Although that you do get that lovely co- cooperative uh, olive oil as yeah. well in in the whole of the Mediterranean. Yeah, yeah. So actually, it it just totally depends. So for instance, we don't uh, we don't usually get like last year we didn't get enough olives to to warrant having our own chamber in the press. Uh, you need a, at least one hundred and fifty kilos uh, to warrant that. So so we just bunged our olives in with with everyone else who didn't have quite enough um and then and you just get it back and you're yeah. still yeah. really pleased yeah, but if yeah, you yeah. you know if you have a big big orchard then you would definitely want your own chamber um but what's really nice is in the, in the restaurants you know because restaurants don't really want to dole out new seasons olive oil to to any like if if people aren't going to notice yeah. they don't give it out so on the table it'll be there'll be a sort of last year's bottle of oil but then if you sort of go oi actually I want the good stuff They'll bring it out and they'll talk to you about it and you'll, they'll give you a white plate and you'll pour it on the plate and you'll sort of look at it and say, oh, yes, very vivid. Oh, yeah, this, this, this year seems very good. And you'll talk about it, which is really nice. Yeah. And you talk about the things that you taste it with, the stracchino cheese and the pinzomino. Is that how you pronounce it? Pinzomino, exactly. So that's a really lovely thing, which is on menus at that time of year. And it's just it's I guess it's, it's a crudité with fennel, uh, raw artichoke uh, and lots of delicious things which you know you just then dip and it comes with a mound of salt and a boil of new bowl of new oil and um yeah you just dip it in and kind of it's a really lovely vehicle for the new olive oil and fetunta la fetunta i would get very told off for not adding the la in front of it um but yes so fetunta is it's the it's a com- the combination of two italian words which is fetta which means slice and unta which means oily so it's an oily slice and it's basically it's grilled or toasted bread Possibly sometimes a rub of garlic, but often not. Um, new olive oil and salt. And that's just, I think, I mean, such a comforting, delicious way to kind of enjoy the new season's oil. You and your husband, Matthew, have now moved to Tuscany. Um, it's You're not living in Agnano all the time. That is very much the a place where you have the, the painting retreats. But you're just down the road and you're very much living the Tuscan lifestyle. And your fourth food moment is a sort of bit of an homage to some of the restaurants in the area. Um, during lockdown, my husband and I were at Arniano. So we were very lucky, you know, we had a lot of space and we were in a very beautiful place. But we're really, really missing going out to restaurants. And this dessert is sort of one of the signatures at Trattoria Camillo, which is one of our favourite restaurants in Florence, which is run by Chiara and Massimo, friends of ours. And it's a crostata, so it's a it's a tart based short crust pastry with this quite runny lemony creme anglaise and covered they cover it in wild strawberries um, when it's the season and it's just so heavenly. And yeah, it was just sort of a lockdown challenge for, for both of us was trying to recreate Camillo's crostata because we were, you know, I guess like everyone bored and just trying to figure stuff out. Um and I I still don't think it's as good as the one in the restaurant by any means, but I now make it all the time. And it goes down really well on the painting course and um, and with friends. So I suppose it's just a kind of nice little testament to to the couple of years we've had yeah. and just the the odd little food challenges we set ourselves and and how I mean this one's definitely percolated into my kind of day to day repertoire, which is quite which I was really pleased with. When you're at Arniano now, does it feel a very different place? I mean, you have created quite a different vibe there you've brought together all the beauty of your childhood and the influence of both your parents uh you've grown up you've 
learnt your mother's river cafe puddings and more and you are doing the food yourself you've celebrated it all in a beautiful book um that absolutely transports people to to tuscany your tuscany does it feel like the house of your youth or does it feel like the house of your future that's such a good question i mean I suppose places, yeah, they develop and grow with the people, don't they? Because I think for us, the painting courses is a huge thing. And what I really love about it, and actually this, these are the moments that make it feel like like my childhood, is that is is when our painters come and, and talk about the garden and talk about the beauty and these compliments to, to what my father created outside or, and what my mother created inside um are so you know they really make me so thrilled and happy and I think it's such a wonderful way to try and keep the spirit of my of my dad alive and I mean once we had a woman who who just walked around the garden and wept at the beauty uh, which was obviously so wonderful so places always develop and change and I'm sure I know my sister wants to start doing start doing some interesting things there and and I will continue to do the painting courses so you know it'll roll on and and carry on hopefully inspiring people and inspiring us and um but it, essentially it'll always feel like home it'll always feel like the place where we grew up and spent our childhood i think thanks for listening you can read the transcripts to the show at jellysmith.com and just click on podcasts and do sign up for my newsletter while you're there you can also get in touch on social media i'm at cooking books with Jilly smith on instagram where you can follow my adventures in cooking with leaths online Check the show notes and on Instagram for full details of how to get the Cooking the Books discounts on these cookery courses. 